let's pray together, shall we? Our, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we weren't what we were, uh, but because of what Jesus has done, we can be part of your family. Uh, Father, help us to listen, help us to think hard, help us to encourage one another. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, I don't know what you shared as your favourite rags to riches story. Uh, I think we're all suckers for them and we love them. Uh, this is one of my favourites. Here we go. <laughs> Oh no, where's the volume? Sorry, can't watch all of it. Uh, uh, it was it was one of our favourites when, when we were growing up in, in my generation, and I still remember the time when my youth fellowship group watched all of them back to back. I think there were five of them at, in those days, and so after youth fellowship one Friday night, we just sat there and watched all of them. I think there's a sixth one now, Rocky Balboa. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but it, it's it's a great rags to riches story. It, it's about this small time boxer who grows up in an underprivileged part of town, and against all the odds, Rocky fights through to become the heavyweight champion of the world. It's a fantastic story. And these Rocky movies have made Sylvester Stallone a multi-millionaire. Now, my wife tells me that the Rocky movies aren't popular because Sylvester Stallone is good-looking. My wife tells me that it's not great acting that's made these movies popular, nor is it the clever dialogue. Um, it, it is because I think deep down, we just love those rags to riches stories. Uh, but of course, we know that this is a bit of a fairy tale, it's a made up story. But there are some real rags to riches stories as well, aren't there? Uh, this one, Mao's Last Dance, is one of my favourites. Uh, recently, the children's book has come through, and I've been reading that to my kids, and, and uh, at bedtime, as they all cuddle around and, and read the story, you just see the tears come down their eyes at the age of seven and six and four as they get into this story. An incredible story about Li Xuing Sing, who was born in bitter poverty in China, in Qingdao, in a, a, a large family, in a poor family. Uh, such poverty that uh, they survived through winter by eating tree bark. At the age of 11, uh, he was taken away by a group of people uh, to be part of the Beijing Dance Academy to serve Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. He was 11 when he left home, and at the academy, he trained for six days a week from 5.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night. Six days a week. And not only was that the thing, he used to get up earlier than the rest and go to bed later than the rest and do more training under candle lunch. And through that hard work, he was picked up by the Houston Ballet and became their lead dancer. He actually ended up marrying an Australian and became the principal dancer of the Australian Ballet. And during that time, he used to get up at ungodly hours in the morning to study with the Australian Securities Institute to become a stockbroker so that he'd be setting his life up after he finished dancing. Today, he's one of the managing directors of one of the largest stockbroking firms in Australia. 
a rags to riches story, starting from poverty in China, now a managing director, married, family. You know, our hearts just warm when we hear someone who starts out with nothing but through hard work and determination. Against all the odds, they come through and grab the opportunities in life that's held before them. And they, they come through and they make a success of things. You know, the, the guy who, who starts off being a, a, a waiter and ends up owning a chain of restaurants. The bellboy who owns up, ends up owning a chain of hotels. We love those stories. And I think stories like that, we want to put ourselves in them. We want to escape from our measly existence. We, we say to ourselves, you know, that could be me. We can do that. I can do that. And so I think rags to riches stories, well, they capture our imagination. We love them. And I want to say to you today, if you're one of those persons like me who loves rags to riches stories, you'll love what this part of the Bible says. It's a beautiful rags to riches story. Let's start off with the rags, the rags that Paul describes in chapter 3, verse 3 of Titus. It says there, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's not very complimentary, is it? Uh, that's what the Cretan Christians were like. Uh, that's what I was like before I heard the truth. And that's what you were like before you came to know the truth. I don't think that sort of thing goes down really well in our feel-good-about-yourself sort of generation. Uh, I don't know. We're all for praise and and making sure that people aren't abused or or put down. Uh, Recently in the newspapers, there were a whole bunch of articles about helicopter parents so that parents won't let their children fail and just come in and rescue and they heap lots and lots of praise and and when kids get criticised, they don't know what to do with it. Uh, in my uh, children's primary school that they go to, uh, they have weekly achievement awards in every class. Uh, but what happens is that they just rotate their children through it. All the kids in the class get the achievement awards. So just before Easter, uh, my eldest daughter, Anastasia, seven-year-old, right, she got her achievement award. Her achievement award was for trying her best. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just sounds lame. I'm very proud of her. <laughs> but you know, it just sounds like they had nothing else to say. Anastasia tried her best. That's lovely. <laughs> but I think we're full of euphemisms, aren't we? Like, I'm not short anymore, I'm just vertically challenged. <laughs> We're not single, just romantically challenged. (laughs) But we're people of the truth. Uh, The Bible says the truth. We're people of reality. And let's not get back from admitting who we were and what we were really like. Even for you who grew up in Christian homes, this is the situation. This is what the world is like. First of all, it says there, we were foolish. Uh, The psalmist was the one who actually said, it's the fool in his heart who says there is no God. Confronted by the wonder and goodness of creation, we would rather worship created things rather than creator. It's just dumb. See, in shutting out the goodness of God, you know what? We're actually left with meaninglessness. We're nothing more than a random compilation of atoms. We're nothing more than an accident. There is no meaning, there is no purpose. 
there are no values, there is no true, there is no false, there is no good, there's no love, there's no existence. It just happens. We're here because we cause we're here because we're here because we're here. We are because we are because we are because we are because we are. In fact, I'm no better than what this lectern is. I just happen to take this particular model because my genetic structure has caused me to become like this. The lectin made out of wood, well, that was made out of that genetic material and somehow it's fashioned into this lectin. Of course, the lectin is actually superior to me because it's not under the misapprehension that it's someone. You see, I've got this terribly disordered grey matter in me that's twitching inside my head that's telling me that I'm a person. Which is a nonsense, of course. I'm just random atoms that happen to take this form. Uh, some of us try to manufacture meaning, really. Uh, things like religion, things like trying to be good. But at the end of the day, it's all meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And once you're foolish enough to remove God, what you find is meaninglessness. And at the end of the day, you remove humanity as well. The person disappears. They're no longer there. It's an out, out world of utter madness, as Nietzsche puts it. You remove God and you cannot have all the things that go with him. As well as being foolish, Paul describes us as being disobedient. I don't know what form of disobedience looks like for you. Some of us might grade it, and some are worse than others. But at the end of the day, what the Bible says is that those symptoms of disobedience are really just symptoms. There's an underlying disease that's going on. They're just external symptoms of an underlying disease. You see, it's all about rebellion at the end of the day. It's about saying, God, I won't let you tell me what to do because I want to run my life my own way. I will be God in my world. You see, ultimately disobedient is not just breaking some arbitrary law, whatever your grades of disobedience look like, but it's actually saying, rack off, God. You've got no right to make up the rules. I'm going to make up the rules. It's not so much law-breaking as law-making. There's disobedience, and then there's deceit. I don't know whether you've ever been conned by anyone. Uh, it's awful, and it makes you angry. You hear of those uh, Nigerian, what is it, 451 or 154 or whatever scams, and people lose tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars as they get, get conned. I've never been done bad uh, that badly, but I still remember the door-to-door salesman, the door-to-door -door fruit salesman, who came to our place probably two, three years ago. I still remember him knocking on our door and saying that, well, you know, because of all the drought and because of the cost of putting fruit through the big chains like Woolies and Coles, he's actually trying to make some money going to door-to-door. -door. And he got out some pieces of fruit, a uh, piece of orange actually, and, and cut it open and gave me some to taste. And it was one of the most beautiful oranges I've tasted. Sweet, good-looking, thin skin. It was perfect. And so for 20 bucks, he'll get me a whole crate of this stuff. Stuff from his own farm. And so he left it at the door, I paid him the money, and later on I looked at it. Top layer, nice fruit. Every piece of fruit underneath was rotten. It was terrible. I felt silly, I felt angry, I was disappointed. We hate being scammed. And yet, we're happily conned by Satan. We've been deceived into thinking that if we do take control of our life, sorry, not our life, the life that God has given us, we could do a better job than what God can do. We've been deceived into thinking that we could be happier, more contented, more prosperous without God. 
we've been deceived by the lie that after death, well, at the very worst, there's nothing. But probably we'll all end up in heaven as anyway. You know, as long as I'm not a murderer or a pedophile or something like that. We were deceived, Jesus says, by the father of lies. And the result of our foolishness and disobedience and our being deceived is that we're enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We couldn't help but do what's wrong. You ever tried really wanting to do something right and you just can't help doing the wrong thing? Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure it has. You know, this this thing about self-control and, and, and self-governance, it's a mirage at the end of the day. You're not in control. We're enslaved, the Bible says. And Paul piles it up even further. Not only were we out of step with God, we're out of step with each other. We were profoundly affected. We talked about malice and envy and hate. We saw each other as competitors. We live in envy, always wanting what other people have, what is what we wanted. We ended up hating each other and being hated. It's mutual there, do you see? And it's a fairly miserable, dark picture. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you gloss over words like that, I think. But I think there's some of you who do remember. And there's probably some of you here who know what it's like for you in your life. It's miserable, isn't it? But then we see that great word, but. Uh, the word but is actually one of the most important <coughs> and significant words in any language. Uh, this little word signals to us that a totally new situation has come about. What used to be the case is gone. A new regime has been ushered in. Uh, you, you ever experience overwhelming relief? When, when you've discovered that when, when something that you weren't looking forward to, that gets taken away? You know, like um, uh, that uh, quiz that's on this afternoon that you've forgotten about, that you haven't studied, and, and the lecturer rings up and says, oh, sorry, I'm sick, it's called off. Doesn't that feel great? You know, those relatives that you don't like really a lot, and, and, and they're staying with you this weekend, and they ring up on Friday night and cancel at last minute, and you go, you know, it, it's, it's nice. But what that word says is, here's the situation, but something else has happened. You know, your hard drive's crashed with your thesis on it. But your backup is okay, it's up to date. You've been diagnosed with cancer, but there's a cure. Listen to the but here in Titus. After Paul describing us, as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious. And Paul says, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You like that? Let's have a look at the riches. Firstly, God made something appear, he says there. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared. His kindness and love has appeared. How does kindness and love appear? You know, does he do skywriting or something like that? In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. There's that word appear. 
uh, in the other pastorals, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, The grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what's appeared. Jesus. Paul uses the word grace in those other passages. It's not necessarily the thing that you say before meals, nor is it the name of your ex-girlfriend or something like that. Um, it's his generosity. It's his love. It's kindness. Uh, the word there is not the agape words that Christians seem to know so much about now. It's actually philanthropia, which we get the word philanthropy, philos, love, anthropos, human beings, mankind. It's a love of people. And what God says, he loved us so much that he gave us his son. Jesus has appeared. The Saviour has appeared. And so Jesus actually saves us. <laughs> That's the heart of the Christian experience, isn't it? Salvation. And of course, being saved actually implies that we were in danger once. Because, you know, frankly, you don't get saved unless you're in danger. Uh, see, I'm standing on the beach one day and suddenly a lifesaver comes over and rescues me and gives me... It, it doesn't make sense, you know? I'm okay and he gives me mouth to mouth. Ugh, what is that? <laughs> it only makes sense if you're drowning, if there's a wave that's going to kill you or something and the lifesaver saves you, that's his job, that's what happens. But if everything's okay, there's no rescue. If everything is okay, there's no saving. God saves us because we're in real danger. And the danger is horrific. The Bible says this danger is spending eternity cut off from God. It's hell. And if you're one of those people there, here, who is not sure about the existence of hell, who's not sure about the danger, who's not really sure whether God actually makes this thing called hell or sends people to be judged. I want to ask you this question. If the danger wasn't real, then what's the point of saving us? Why did Jesus die if there was no real danger? God sends us a saviour to save us because we were in dire straits. Have a look at later what else God does. What other parts of these riches are there? Verse 7. You see, God also justifies us. Verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Justification is a legal concept. It's like being in God's courtroom. And we stand on trial and God is sitting on the judgment seat. He's the judge. And our, the charges against us are being read out. And as the charges are being read out, we're going through our mind, these are the consequences. We're going to be judged. And what justification is when God says, it's okay, you're okay with me, it's fine. There's no amended sentence, there's no parole to be served, just a complete and total pardon. In his eyes, we stand before the judge without guilt and innocence. How can that be? Didn't I deserve what's coming? How can God be just and let the innocent go free? Where's the justice in that? And so we look at how God did it. See, how does God save us and declares us free and innocent? And what Paul does, firstly, 
is tells us how he doesn't do it. You know, in the Rocky music, uh, in the Rocky movies, the, the Eye of the Tiger music starts, and 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 there's a pumping and one-handed push-ups and punching carcasses and all sorts of stuff, and and running up the steps in the Philadelphia Town Hall, and through hard work and determination, Rocky succeeds. And, and Lee, he, he does these amazing practices and dance routines and, and he succeeds. And what this part of the Bible says is, there's nothing that you can do. It's not because of you. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, <coughs> enslaved and malicious. How do we get these riches? Not because we're moral, not because we're wonderful, not because heaven would be a drag without us. The Bible says that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good. All have turned away. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't do it. It's not because of us. It's all because of mercy, you see there. Those five beautiful words in the middle of verse 5. You see it there? But because of his mercy. If grace is getting what you don't deserve then mercy is not getting what you do deserve. History has seen uh, many mighty conquerors and military-minded people. Uh, one man who saw his kingdom expand with, by force was Napoleon. He reigned from 1804 to about 1814, and Napoleon's attacks on European superpowers is so, are so well known that the wars are named after him, the Napoleonic Wars. And yet, despite his force with dealing with his enemies, there's one story which actually illustrates what mercy is all about. Uh, there was a young man who was arrested for stealing from the royal palace, twice actually. And so he was sentenced to hang. And yet, the boy's mother sought mercy from Napoleon on behalf of her son. And Napoleon answered the mother, um, uh, Napoleon answered the mother and said, well, this boy has stolen from our palace twice now. He deserves justice, and that justice is death. And so the mother replied, But I don't ask for justice, Your Highness. I said, Mercy. He doesn't deserve mercy, replied Napoleon. And the mother passionately begged. It wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. And touched by the mother's grief and passion, Napoleon consented and released the boy. The mother was right. Mercy is not deserved, but freely given. You can't earn mercy. You can't pay for it. Mercy is receiving something you deserve. Mercy is not receiving something you deserve. And in the boy's case, he deserved punishment, death. And Napoleon showed mercy in releasing him. Of course, the problem with that story is, well, where's justice in all this? It didn't cost Napoleon much. But you know what? It costs the death of God's own son. God can't just sweep evil and sin under the carpet like that and say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, Adolf Hitler, six million Jews, what's that amongst friends? Really? Pol Pot, Stalin, you're okay. All those people, nah, don't really matter. Lies? Okay, come on in. I don't mind a bit of lying. That's fine. Adultery? Yeah, not so good. God's not arbitrary like that. Those who rebellion in rebellion against him deserve judgment. And God paid for that, that price. The price that we needed to pay by the death of his own son. 
God's mercy is different. In Jesus' substitutionary death, both justice and mercy meet. In works of art, when a person has been painting with particular beauty and vividness, like the Mona Lisa, it's not so much the person in the picture that gets the praise, is it? You don't look at the picture like that and say, oh, Mona Lisa, she's a spunk. (laughs) (laughs) You don't do that. You look at it, you stand in front of the picture and say, wow, Leonardo da Vinci, he's a magnificent painter. It's just incredible skill, the way that he works those colours and the light and the shade and those shapes that he puts on. It's incredible. And it's almost Paul saying here that it's like you and God. We Christians who've gone from rags to riches, we're exhibits of God's skill. It's not about us. It's not about what we have done. We are masterpieces of God's grace. And you don't say, wow, isn't so-and-so a wonderful Christian? You say, isn't God magnificent? Isn't the Master so incredible in doing this rags to riches work? It's Jesus on the cross that did it. Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own in chapter 2. In chapter 3, it says there how he does it. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on, his, on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. And there is a magnificent description of how that salvation works through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Notice that they're all in past tense there in the passage. It's all been done for us. Three metaphors, three descriptions. Firstly, washing. Uh, the idea of being scrubbed clean. It's amazing. Uh, last weekend, I was listening to uh, the Waratahs beating the Brumbies, uh, finally. Winning ugly, but you know, at least they win. It's sort of okay. Um, and I was thinking to myself, when was the last time I played rugby? And I think 27 years ago was the last time I pulled on boots. And, and you know how it is when memories get a little bit old and, and you talk to people who used to play sports. Every kick just gets a little bit better, every tackle's a bit stronger, every run's a bit further. So if I ever start talking about rugby and what I did, don't believe me. Right? <laughs> it's all a lie, it's all a dream. Right? Except, except, I do remember the fantastic feeling after playing a hard game and you're filthy with mud. The great feeling it is to jump into showers and being washed clean. You know, like just 80 minutes of hard football and, and you're just feeling stuffed. And you stand under the shower and it just it just feels like a new life. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's a bit trite, really. That's a trite illustration. You might be a person who actually feels dirty and unclean from the things that you've done or the things that have happened to you. Life is messed up. It's grubby. It's filthy. It's awful. Here's the offer. You can be washed clean. At the cross, Jesus' death washes us. We can be purified to be God's own person. And the cleansing is like rebirth, a radical new beginning to live differently. And it talks about their renewal, very closely linked with rebirth. It means complete transformation that takes place inside you, that allows you to see the world in a completely different way. 
with completely new eyes. Some people imply that the giving of the Holy Spirit, which makes all this happen, is piecemeal and miserly. And you know, God will give you a little bit of the Holy Spirit. If you look after that okay, then he might give you another bit. And maybe sometimes he gives you a whole second lot of it, a big chunk of it. (coughs) But the passage says here that God pours out his Spirit fully and lavishly and generously. That's what it says here. But Jesus says in Luke 11 actually, you who are sinners know how to give good, good gifts to your children. Uh, when your kid asks for a loaf of bread, you don't give him a stone. And when they ask for a fish, you don't give him a snake. How much more will your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts of the Holy Spirit, it says in Luke 11. Have a look at Matthew 7. The good gifts in Matthew 7 is actually the gift of the Spirit in Luke 11. God is not mean, miserly, stingy. He's generous with his gift of the Spirit. The Spirit, which actually renews us, gives us new birth, cleanses us. There you have three images of how God has saved us. But why does he do this? Why does he go to this extraordinary length and trouble and cost? Look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. As part of God's new family, we're heirs. We have riches in heaven that have a reserve sign with your name all over it. And this isn't just wishful thinking. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed by Jesus' death. It's guaranteed by the gift of the Spirit. It's true. And you know what? Sometimes we just don't get it. We don't remember it. I use this illustration a lot, but Bryson Smith tells the true story of a black slave in America who lived just prior to the American Civil War. Uh, The master, very unusually for this time, left the slave when he passed away $50,000. Now, that's a heck of a lot of money for us now. But when you think of before the American Civil War, that's just an enormous amount of money. And so the master's bank manager called the slave into his office to explain to him what's happened. And so very carefully explained that the slave has now got $50,000. And after everything, he asked him, so... Look, do you have any questions that you want to ask? To which the slave replied, Please, sir, do you think I can borrow 50 cents? I want to buy a sack of cornmeal. The slave had no idea how rich he was. I mean, he couldn't take it in. He couldn't imagine the extent of his wealth beyond his wildest dreams. And we don't get it. We have the riches of eternity ahead of us. We have eternal life. And we're living like paupers. Not appreciating the wealth. Not appreciating our new identity. We're heirs with the hope of eternal life. Death is not the end for us. We can live lives according to our family name. We can live as children of God. You see, it's not just pie in the sky when you die stuff. Have a look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, well, may hope for the future? No, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the energy which drives you now when you know this truth and you know the hope that you have. It helps you to be godly. This is the truth that leads to godliness. 
frankly, I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you're a new Christian through the Easter talks that we've had and you've been coming back week in, week out, and you're starting to realise after hearing talks from last week and this week and, and all the other bits of Bible study in between, godly living is just hard work. Maybe you're a core EU person and you've been coming to these talks week in, week out and you just feel it's your duty to support EU public meetings. You're mature, you're responsible, this is what you do, it's your duty. But maybe deep inside, your heart's not really in it. It's passed halfway through the semester, the work is piling out, and frankly you're living your Christian life by numbers. Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe you're just hanging on by your nails. And you're just giving this one last try. You're just trying to live as a Christian. Maybe you're not even a Christian person here. You've been grabbed by your friends and and you've sat through 30 minutes just trying to work out what this Christian stuff is all about. Maybe you don't even know whether you're Christian or not. And you've been trying to live good lives and it's just too hard. But here's the truth. Here is the truth that leads to godliness. Here's the energy that actually causes your life to change. The truth tells us what we were like. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious. We were unrighteous. The truth tells me that what God is like, God is gracious and merciful. He's the God who acts, who saves, who justifies. He has washed us, given us new birth, made me new again. And he's gone on to give us a purpose, a hope in the future, and a job to do now, to live good lives with the hope of eternal life. That's the thing that drives us. That's the thing that motivates us. It's not legalism. not trying to do good things. It's not just duty. This is life-changing, life-empowering truth. What else can we do but become who we are? What we've just seen... And what we're to be like, what God has done, doesn't that stir in you (coughs) that you want to be who you are, saved, transformed, looking forward to a future? If you're a Christian here today, then the truth should shape and empower you. I probably haven't done this short little passage justice, but it's really one of those purple passages that you need to underline and highlight. Memorize. No. This is a rags to riches story. This is your story. And I guess for some of you, this truth is new to you. At least you've understood it clearly for the first time now. You've seen how wonderful it is and how awful it is not to be part of it. What do you need to do? Well, you need to ask God for forgiveness for what you are, a rebel. You need to thank God for what God has done in sending Jesus to die for you. And you need to ask help from God to live lives that he wants you to live. Any other response will be foolish and dangerous. In a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer that reflects those sentiments. But there's a story by Max Licata that I want to tell. It's about a woman by the name Maria and her attractive 15-year-old daughter, Christina. They lived in a poor neighbourhood in Brazil, uh, in a small village outside the main city. Times were hard, and Maria's husband had long since left. And Christina, well, she dreamed of better things, and often spoke about going to the city and, you know, making it in life. 
have her rags to riches story. Well, one morning, Maria awoke to find Christina had already gone. Maria's heart, of course, broke. She gathered up all her things, all the money that she had, and before going off to the city, stopped by at one of those photo booths and spent most of her money making lots and lots of pictures of herself. <coughs> Maria knew Christina could have no way of supporting herself except for doing those awful things that you'd never dream your child doing, prostitution and the like. Maria loved Christina and began to search for her. She went to every bar, every nightclub, every brothel, every hotel that she could find. And at each one, she would pin a picture of herself uh, down in the corner of a bathroom mirror, uh, in the corner of a phone booth, on a bulletin board outside a hotel, anywhere. Soon Maria ran out of money and she had to go home in tears. Three weeks later, Christina came down the stairs of a hotel after meeting with one of her clients. And she reached the bottom of the stairs and she saw a photo of her mother. Christina started to cry as she moved to take the photo down from the wall. Her throat tightened as she read the back of the photo. This is what her mother wrote. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Christina cried and she went home. Friends, in some way, Titus 3 is God's pasted picture for us. This is what he's like. This is what he's done. And on the back of this letter, God has written, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And today, if you've never done so before, I want you to come home to the Father. Please join me in prayer. If this is your prayer, I'd love you to echo it in your own mind. Dear Heavenly Father, sorry that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, and in all ways rebellious towards you. Thank you that despite our unrighteousness, in your grace and mercy you sent your Son to die for us, that we may be saved. Thank you that despite our filth, we can be washed. Thank you that despite our death, we can be reborn. Thank you that despite our sin, we can be renewed. Father, please forgive me and change me. Help me to live with Jesus as my King, devoting my life to doing what is good. Amen.